Welcome everybody to Neurological Deep Dive. I'm your host, Sir Fawns, and today I am with Dawn with the Gospel Hour, and we're going to do a deep dive into biblical issues. Stay tuned for more. Thank you. In association with Simply KM Studios, brought to you by Anchor. Make your own podcast. Thank you for listening. This program explores the mysteries of the Bible from a variety of historical and theological perspectives which have been debated for centuries. Are there chapters in the Bible that are missing? There are a number of earth-shattering texts that we will likely never see in our lifetime. Stories that have been censored. These were books that allegedly were providing hidden or secret teachings. And entire characters that have disappeared. Any book that didn't have the backing of influential people gets cast out. But why? What was originally in the Bible that was so shocking, so outrageous, that it should be forbidden? They were denounced as the worst kind of blasphemy against Christ. It is one of the most important books ever written. Its contents have been studied, debated, and... Well, thank you for the introduction there. Fawns, welcome to the Gospel Hour with Dawn. We're going to do a deep dive, and the deep dive is going to be about the Apocrypha. We're going to talk about the Apocrypha. And this is the question we're going to try to answer. Does the Apocrypha belong in the Bible? Well, first, let me define the word Apocrypha. The word means hidden or concealed. It has come to mean spurious or possibly spurious. Apocryphal writings are such things as are not published or books whose authors are not known. It's a name for the books whose authority as divinely inspired writings is not admitted. They are the books that are of uncertain authority or the books that are considered to be not canonical. The Apocrypha is the collective name for about 7 to 16 books not included in the Old Testament as inspired by God, according to Hebrew believers, that is, and also according to the early churches. But seven of these books are incorporated or have been incorporated in Jerome's Vulgate, which was produced at about the time of 380 AD. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the seven books now accepted by the Catholic Church and placed in the Old Testament are, and I'm going to name them, there's Tobit, Judith, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, which has also been called Ecclesiasticus, 
and Barak, or Barak. So these are the seven books that have made it into the Roman Catholic Bible. And it was during the Council of Trent, roughly around 1546, which was, it happened to be dominated by the Jesuits. And that was the time when the Catholic Church officially decided that the seven above books that I just named, plus unwritten church tradition, are on equal ground with the Word of God. So they put it, they made it official in 1546 that those seven books are part of the Old Testament canon. So now we've got to define another word. What is meant by canonical or canonical? It, I think it's pronounced canonical. Well, the word canon is derived from the word cane or reed. And these were used as measuring rods. So the sacred canon means those writings that have been established or recognized by God's people to be inspired by God and as part of Holy Scripture. The canonical books of the Bible are those that pass the test of being inspired by God. Faithful Christians down through the centuries have accepted the Bible as containing 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the, in the New Testament. So we have another question. Did the Reformation, or the Reformation churches, which would be the Protestant churches, did they see the seven books in Jerome's Vulgate, which was produced in 380 AD, did they see those seven books as apocryphal and non-canonical? The answer is yes. The Council of Trent, in 1546, condemned this belief of the Reformation people that the seven books in Jerome's Vulgate were apocryphal and non-canonical. And that was found in uh, a book entitled Witch Bible by David Otis Fuller. Another question. Did the Protestant churches of the Reformation insert some apocryphal books in between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The answer is, yes, they did. The Bible-believing reformers saw some value in these books, especially some historical value, but they did not perceive them to be part of divinely inspired sacred scripture. The Apocrypha was at first put in the King James Version, but marked in the index as Apocrypha. It was called the Apocrypha, which again means hidden or concealed or spurious or possibly spurious. Later on, though, the Apocryphal books were removed from the Authorized Version, which is the King James Version, and or from a lot of these uh, Reformed uh, Bibles, these Bibles that were produced from the Reformers. Uh, so later on, these apocryphal books were removed, possibly because some people were seeing them as part of sacred scripture. So that's probably why they took them out. Next question, did Jesus quote from any apocryphal book? And I believe the answer to that is no, not at all. 
And that's why we believe they are apocryphal. Um, number six, the sixth question I've got for you is, did any of the apostles quote from the Apocrypha? And I believe the answer here is no, again, except for possibly Jude. Now, the, there is a, an epistle called the Epistle of Jude. And Jude was uh, most likely the brother of James. In fact, he was the brother of James. And he quoted a piece of Enoch's prophecy. And I'm going to read it. It's, this is coming out of the Bible, out of the book of Jude. And it says this, quote, And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. End quote. That is in Jude verse 14 and 15. So this passage is a reference to the prophecy of Enoch, who was a contemporary of Adam and Eve for many years. And you can prove that by going to Genesis chapter 5, verse 21 to 24. So it says he prophesied. Enoch prophesied. That word prophesied here may mean no more than he spoke, he preached, or he made declarations. The book of Jude is part of the inspired New Testament scriptures. This passage in Jude is inspired, but it also agrees with other scriptures. If you would look at uh, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5, and Matthew 25, 31, and 1 Thessalonians 3, 13, it mentions some of the same things that Jude mentions, especially that part where he says that... Um, it says, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints. Well, that's mentioned in those three references that I just uh, referred to. Now, a book of Enoch was said to have been written around 100 B.C. That's 100 years before Christ. Whether or not Jude quoted, Jude quoted from this book is not known. Jude's sanction of these words from Enoch, which may or may not have come from the book of Enoch, which was dated in 100 BC, does not necessarily sanction the whole book of Enoch. Sometimes the apostles quote the words of people, but this does not mean those people are of God or that their writings are part of Holy Scripture. And you can see that in Titus Chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, the Apostle Paul in this uh, Holy Scripture, he's quoting a prophet from Crete. Crete was an island in the Mediterranean Sea. And uh, there were Cretans that lived there, and that's what they call them, Cretans. And, and this is what he quotes, this is what uh, the Apostle Paul says in Titus chapter 1. He says, the Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. 
So he's quoting the Cretans here. And uh, the fact that he's quoting them doesn't mean that these words uh, come from an inspired book. He's just quoting them. We cannot reasonably conclude this book of Enoch that was apparently written in 100 BC belongs in the canon of Scripture because Christ, the apostles, the early churches, and even the Catholic Church at the Council of Trent did not accept the book of Enoch as a part of sacred canon. Scripture also mentions the book of Jasher, which is not part of the sacred canon. And you can find references to the book of Jasher in the book of Joshua, the Bible, which is a part of Holy Scripture. It's in Joshua chapter 10, verse 13, and also 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18. It makes mention of the book of Jasher. But that doesn't mean the book of Jasher is part of the Holy Scriptures. Therefore, the fact that the Bible quotes a person or a book does not mean those sources ought to be part of the Holy Bible. So now I want to ask this other question, or may, maybe I want to put it this way. I'm going to tell you why I believe the Apocrypha does not believe, belong as part of the God-inspired scriptures. A. They were not allowed a place among the sacred books during the first four centuries A.D. That's one reason why I do not believe they belong part in, in the scripture. They were not in any book called the Bible or the holy books for the first four centuries. That's about 400 years. Also, here's another reason why I don't believe the Apocrypha belongs in, in the Bible as inspired scripture. They were included in the Latin Vulgate by Jerome in 380 A.D., but only officially received as canonical by the Roman Catholic Council of Trent in 1546. This implies they were not officially accepted by their church until 1546. That's 1,500 years after Christ. So that's a big reason why I would not include or perceive the apocryphal writings as part of Scripture. Here's another reason. The Reformed churches included about 16 apocryphal books in their Bibles, but did not see them as divinely inspired. They had historical and other benefit, even as many notes in our present Bibles have much value. But the notes and the maps and the cross-references and the supplements in our study Bibles, those words and those um, pieces are not inspired by God, obviously. Your cross-references in your Bible, those are not inspired. Those are just helps. The maps, that's not inspired by God. And uh, in my book, I got the Thompson Chain reference, and uh, I've got archaeological supplements. Very helpful, very good, but they're not part of sacred scripture. So it's important to know that. Here's another reason why I don't believe the Apocrypha belongs in the Bible. None of the 66 or so books written after the Old Testament canon was closed was preserved in the Hebrew language or preserved in Hebrew, except possibly one. Somebody, uh, which is David Fuller, uh, says that he thinks Ecclesiasticus might have been translated into Hebrew. But none of the other books were translated into Hebrew. Now, you got to understand, uh, the Bible was not really translated into Greek until uh, after Christ came. Now, I know some people think the Septuagint was um, translated the Septuagint supposedly is the Hebrew scriptures translated into Greek. And people say that those were around before Jesus. 
Um, I have pretty good evidence that that is not true. Um, the Septuagint was probably produced by Origen, who was a Christian who was not a faithful Christian. He denied some important truths in the Bible. So I wouldn't put too much stock in uh, Origen. But um, so that's pretty big. Uh, if these seven or 16 apocryphal books were part of the Jewish scriptures, then why were they not in the Jewish language, which was Hebrew? The Hebrew believers did not accept these books as inspired. According to all the information that I have obtained, the Hebrew believers saw only the 39 of the Old Testament, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament inspired by God. And uh, so that's a, a pretty uh, noteworthy uh, argument there for discounting the the Apocrypha and, and not seeing it as sacred scripture. Here's another reason. The Apocryphal writings have a lot of inaccuracies. Now, I'm getting a little technical here, but if you can check this out yourself. Uh, first, Esdras, which is really a, a different way of saying Ezra, but in the Apocryphal writings, it's called first Esdras. Well, in that book, in chapter 5, verse 9, it says that there were 472 sons of Saphat. Now, first Esdras gets that chapter, most of chapter 5, comes right out of Ezra, which is an inspired scripture. It comes right out of Ezra chapter 2. And in Ezra chapter 2, 4, it's really, it says the same thing, except the numbers are wrong. It doesn't say that there were 472 sons of Saphat. In the real Bible, it says there were 372 children of Shephatiah, it calls it. So the names are similar, and it's probably referring to the same person. But they're off by 100, point, 100 children here, 100 people, and that's a big mistake or a big contradiction. So if, okay, so that's just one uh, example. If you look in that chapter 5, you'll find quite a few of them. Here's another one. In First Esdras chapter, Chapter 5, verse 10, it says there were 756 sons of Ares. But in Ezra chapter 2, in the real Bible, Ezra, chapter 2, verse 5, it says there were 775 children of Era, which would be the same thing. Ares and Era are probably referring to the same person. So that's off there by uh, almost 20, 20 children. Uh, 756 in first Esdras, but 775 in Ezra, chapter 2, verse 5. There are many other discrepancies and, you could say, inconsistencies between the list in first Esdras 5 and Ezra, chapter 2. Now, here's another inaccuracy or a contradiction, you could say. It's found in 2nd Esdras, chapter 4, verse 36, where Uriel is called the archangel. That's in 2nd Esdras. Well, Uriel in the Bible is clearly a man, not an angel. And you can prove that by looking at 1st Chronicles, chapter 6, verse 24, 1st Chronicles, chapter 15, verse 5 and 11, and also 2nd Chronicles, chapter 3, uh, chapter 13, 
verse 2. If you look at those, you'll find that the word Uriel is found. But that's clearly a man because it says he had some daughters. So an archangel is an angel of the highest order. The Bible speaks of only one archangel, and that would be Michael. And you would find that in Jude chapter 9. And you would find a reference to the archangel in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. So that would be, you could call, a contradiction. If, that is, Second Esdras is part of Holy Scripture. But I don't believe it is part of Holy Scripture. Because it disagrees with the Bible. Also, in 1 Esdras chapter 5, verse 55, it has the word cars in it. But in the real Bible, in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, it has cedar trees. There's quite a big difference between cars and cedar trees. And the word cars is spelled C-A-R-R-S. Now that might be just a typo. And I'm assuming that's probably what it is because it, it makes no sense. But that's that'd be a mistake or a, uh, a type typographical error, most likely. That's, that's my guess. But it is an error, and it is a contradiction. Um, the correct wording there is found in Ezra chapter 3, verse 7, and it says cedar trees. Now, I've mentioned a few contradictions here. Now, if all these books, 1st Ezra's, 2nd Ezra's, and Ezra, if all three of these books are divinely inspired, we would have to say that the Bible has discrepancies and contradictions. To include 1st or 2nd Esdras as part of Scripture would fuel distrust in the Holy Scriptures as a whole. And a lack of confidence in God's words undermines faith in God, which, by the way, destroys the souls of people. So any movement, any doctrine, any concept that undermines people's faith in God's word is not healthy. It's not good for us. Because if we cannot trust God and his words, then whom can we trust? And if uh, God's words are contradictory or filled with inaccuracies and things like that, then we would have to assume God made some mistakes. And um, he didn't. So God's word is uh, trustworthy and um, we don't want to include spurious books within the canon of sacred scripture. Because by doing that, we're hurting people. We're getting people to lose confidence in their Bibles. And that's not a healthy uh, thing to do. So here's another one. Another reason why I believe the Apocrypha, uh, whether there's seven books from the Catholic Church or 16 books that have been included in in even in our King James Bible uh, at one time. Um, here's a, so here's another reason why I, I don't believe the Apocrypha belongs in, in part of the sacred scripture. These writings, the Apocryphal writings, display a style that is out of keeping with the authenticated scriptures. If you would just read them, you'd say, it doesn't seem, it doesn't have the style of scriptures, of the scriptures. And uh, let me give you an example. The words, we have done ungodly, quote unquote, in Barak, chapter 2, verse 12, seem to be poor English. Yeah, it literally says, quote, we have done ungodly, end quote. 
That's not proper English. That's out of keeping with the way the Bible reads. Plus, God is never called the everlasting in any other book of the 66 books of the Bible. But in Barak, chapter 4 and 5, it mentions God as called, they call it, he's referred to as the everlasting, capital E, of course, and calling God the everlasting. Well, that's only found in, found in this book, in Barak. Uh, that I'm aware of, um, but it's not found in the Bible, in the inspired scriptures, the word, the everlasting. God is called uh, the Almighty, and he's called uh, the Lord, and he's called the God of Israel, and the God of Jacob, he's the God of Abraham. He's called those things, but he's never called the everlasting. So um, I would have to say that the book of Barak, or Barak, is not um, part of sacred scripture. However, according to the Roman Catholic Church, they do include that in Scripture, that book. And so um, that's why I would not put stock in the Roman Catholic Bible, uh, because they've added seven books. Um, next reason why I believe the Apocrypha does not belong as part of the God-inspired Scriptures. They teach doctrines and practices at variance with scripture. Let me give you an example. Prayers for the dead or making atonement for the dead, as Judas Maccabeus supposedly did, is contrary to the sacred scriptures. And you can read this for yourself if you have Second Maccabees. Turn to there, turn to that book, look at chapter 12, and Read verse 41 to 46. If you've got 46, uh, some of them may not have verse 46 in it, but apparently there is one of verse 46. So it's in Second Maccabees chapter 12, verse 41 and 46. And you will see that Judas Maccabeus believed and taught the concept of prayers for the dead and also taught the concept of making atonement for the dead. Well, we ought to pray for the living. We ought to pray only for the living and pray for them, for their repentance and for their salvation while they are alive. After they're dead, it's too late because after death comes judgment, not a second chance. And in the Bible, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it, said, it says, it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. So it is vain to pray for dead souls. And there's a good reason for that. Let me give you some scriptures. I'm turning to Matthew now. In uh, Matthew 25, Matthew 25, verse 10. This is um, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And in just verse 10, I'm going to read it. It says, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgins, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. So this teaches the concept that there is 
a time when it is it is too late to change your destiny. So praying for someone after death, if they die in their sins, then they will be punished by God because they died in their sins. The time to get your sins forgiven is before your day in court, before judgment day. But the Bible says it is appointed unto men once to die. That means nobody dies twice. Everybody dies only once. But after this death comes the judgment. So uh, it's vain to pray for dead souls because it, there comes a time when it is too late. Now here's another good reference in the Bible. It's in Luke chapter 13. And I'm beginning to read here verse 23. It says, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, this is Jesus now speaking, he says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. That word straight means uh, narrow or restricted. So he says, strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door, and he began to stand without and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy presence, and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And they shall come from the east and from the west, and from the north and from the south, and shall sit down in the kingdom of God. And behold, there are last, which shall be first, and there are first, which shall be last. There will be a great reversal that takes place in the future. And, um, but here I mention this verse just to show that there comes a time when the opportunity to be right with God, to get right with God, will be lost. And it'll be too late. Because he says here, I know you not whence ye are. That word whence is Old English. It means from what place or from what source you are. I don't know from what place you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. So if we die in our sin, that's what we're going to hear from Christ. So once a person dies, there's no changing of the state that that person is in. And here is another verse that's even more clear, and it's in Luke chapter 16. And it, it's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. It says, And there was a certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, which was at that time basically paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell... He lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Lazarus was the one who was begging for food. He had life very tough, 
but it's not mentioned in the scripture, but it's implied Lazarus was saved, not because he was poor, but because he was he had his sins forgiven. He was a good man. And then it says, so uh, this is Jesus speaking, and it says, and he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. There's that word torment again. So the rich man is in a place of torment. He wants relief. I'm reading now. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. That's the third time the word torment is found here. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. There's the fourth time that word torment is found. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. In other words, they've got the holy scriptures. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, I read that passage to prove that after we die, there is no changing of your condition. There is no changing of your punishment. There is everlasting punishment for the one that dies without Christ as his Savior and without Christ as his Lord. So, um, And it says here that there was a great gulf fixed, so that they which pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from them. So did he ask Abraham, oh, could you please get me out of this place of torment? No, he knew there was no way out. But this, this man, this rich man, did think of his brethren. And he cared about his brethren. And he didn't want his brethren to come into this place. So that's why he wanted uh, Abraham to send somebody to rise from the dead and send somebody about the truth of hell and the truth of the, the necessity of salvation. Well, Abraham said unto this rich man, he says, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, if they will not believe the Bible, they won't believe anything. Because the Bible has been so well authenticated and proven to be the word of God. If you don't believe the Bible, you may as well kind of hang it up. Uh, but I'm not saying hang it up. Of course, all, we should always be seeking truth. But um, anyway, that shows that uh, no amount of praying for the dead will relieve them of their of their plight, of their state of punishment. And here's another verse. It's in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. It says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And in another place, it says that they're speaking of the uh, false prophet. It says that... Uh, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. 
and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. So if we're going to follow the Antichrist or follow the devil or follow the elite Satan worshipers that are controlling our government and most governments of the world, if we're going to follow them rather than God, well, then prepare for being in a state of torments day and night forever and ever. So that's found in uh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. These are very strong words. But I read Revelation 20, verse 15, because there's a finality about death. After we die, if our name is written in the book of life, we're going to go to be with God in heaven. But if our name is not written down, then there will be eternal doom. So it is vain to pray or, or to pray for the dead, absolutely. But it's also vain to pay alms for dead souls or to pay for masses to be said, Catholic masses, to be said for dead loved ones. That's vain. Or to do penance for the dead. These are all what I would consider dead works. And dead works are, uh, the Bible tells us to repent from dead works or to purge our conscience from dead works. Dead works are lifeless works, useless works, unprofitable works, empty works, or there are works that do not proceed from a spiritual life, or they are works that don't proceed from a heart for God. Those are dead works. And so praying for the dead is, is unprofitable and it, it will only lead to your deception. I've seen a sign here where I am, uh, and it says, pray for the souls in purgatory. Well, the devil would love to have you pray for the souls in purgatory. That way you won't pray for your mother, your father, your sister, your loved ones, your friends. God wants you to pray for your friends, and the things we ought to pray for most of all is not only for healing. Yes, we should pray when we're feeling bad. Pray for healing, but the healing of the soul is far, far, far more important. We should pray for people to repent and to turn to God and to make sure that their names are written in the book of life so that when they die, they won't be cast into the lake of fire. So this false doctrine of praying for the dead, it's found in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's also been a great moneymaker for the Catholic, for the uh, Roman Catholic institution and for that whole system. Uh, they've been making lots of money because people care about their dead loved ones. The word purgatory is not in the Bible. The fires of purgatory that can supposedly purge remaining sin after death. This is a fiction. This is nowhere taught in the Holy Bible, but it is taught in Second Maccabees chapter 12 verse 41 to 46. So that's a big reason um, why I would discount the book of Maccabees because it teaches things that are contrary to all 66 books in the Bible, the other 60, or the real 66 books of the Bible. So what can purge our sin? The word purge means cleanse. Well, only the shed blood of Jesus, in other words, his sufferings and death on the cross, can purge our sins. His blood is the only thing that can wash our sins away or atone for them, or serve to reconcile us to God. And there are some clear verses that teach that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, 
It says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. So it's the sufferings of Christ that have a atoning value. And only that. Uh, no amount of money you pay for dead souls to be out of purgatory is going to avail in any way. And um, that's just one verse, but there's a lot of verses that show that it's only the blood of Jesus that can save us. It says uh, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, in the blood of Christ. And um, there's uh, other verses. There's 1 John 1, 7. It says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Colossians chapter 1, verse 14. It says, We have redemption through his blood. Matthew 26, verse 28. It says that through uh, when we... Uh, through the death of Christ. I'm turning there right now. I think I'd better read it. It's in Matthew 26, verse 28. It says, For this is my blood. And Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he is showing them the wine or the grape juice there. And they're about to take part and drink this grape juice or this wine. Uh, wine can mean unfermented at times in the Bible. It seems like that's the case. So <clears throat> they're about to uh, drink from the cup. And he says this, Jesus says, For this is my blood of the New Testament. Now, obviously, if you know English, the word is, look it up, it means the word represents. I could say, this is a picture of my wife. Well, really, it's not her. It just represents her. It's a picture of her. It's I could say, this is my wife, but it's not. It's really a representation of my wife. So, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and he says, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Well, <laughs> obviously, that was grape juice. That was not shed for money. It was his blood. In other words, this represents my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of your sins. So, uh, or for the remission of sin. So if we want our sins remitted, it's going to take more than prayers for the dead. And of course, um, fire cannot burn away sin. And so the fires of purgation or the fires of purgatory are not going to purge away sin. So I think... Um, these verses are enough. There's just a sample. There's a lot more verses that can that show that it's the blood of Jesus. That's why there is no salvation apart from Christ. It says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And that's in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. So the blood of Christ, the shed blood, that is, uh, atoned for our sins. But that is not enough. We sinners must do our part. What is our part? Number one, we must believe on the Lord Jesus and we must obey him and receive him as our king, our master, our Lord. If we don't do that, then we're not going to receive the benefit of, 
of his shed blood. We're not going to be forgiven, in other words. So sinners must believe in Christ, believe his words, believe his laws. And if you believe his laws, what will you do? You're going to obey his laws. And you say, well, his laws, he doesn't give many. Oh, yes. All of the Old Testament contains all the laws of Christ. The only things that Christ did away with were the ceremonial laws or the Jewish ceremonial laws uh, that pointed to him coming and other Jewish ceremonial laws. There's quite a few others that were done away with, like the Jews were not able to eat pork or bacon. Well, Jesus has done away with that, and you can find that out in the book of Acts. So we must believe to be saved and to be forgiven of our sins. We must believe in Christ, but we must also repent. And that word repent means change. It means change your ways. It means put away sin. Everything you know is wrong. Get rid of it. And if we do that, then we will be forgiven of all our sins. And you don't want to leave this world apart from being forgiven by God. So also in the book, here's another book in the uh, Apocrypha. It's called The Prayer of Manasseh. It's only one page. But in this Prayer of Manasseh, in this book, this apocryphal book, we read that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, quote, have not sinned against thee, end quote. So they say there that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not sinned against God. And that's not true because uh, they all have sinned, all three of them. And um, Abraham sinned when he took uh, Hagar. He listened to his wife rather than to God, and he committed a serious sin. He took as a secondary wife Hagar, who was an Egyptian girl, because God promised that he would have a child, and so he took matters into his own hands. Of course, he was coaxed into it by Sarah, his wife, and he was a fool. And what did he do? He listened to his wife rather than to God Almighty. And um, by the way, that's a little side note here. Uh, a lot of people are going astray because they're listening to the wrong people, whether it be a man or a woman, it doesn't matter. But um, we've got to listen to God more than anyone else. And a lot of husbands are failing in their homes because they're listening to their wives a little bit too much. Now, maybe sometimes they're not listening to them enough. And that might be the problem too. But the key is we need men who fear God, open their Bibles, find out what God says, and do the will of God no matter who approves or who disapproves. And that's what we need to be. Uh, we need to be like that. So anyway, in this prayer of Manasseh, it says that Abraham and Jacob, uh, Jacob lied clearly when he went to his father and his father asked him, are you Esau, my son? And Jacob answered, yes, I am Esau. He lied point blank to his own dad. Of course, because of that lie, he got a blessing. And uh, th there's a good lesson there too. Uh, Sometimes you may think you win out you win out when you lie. Well, you may think that for a while, but God knows, and uh, liars will have their part in a lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, it says. So even though you cut corners or violate God's law and something good comes out of it, and you say, see, and, you know, it was fine, uh, it was okay here if I just did my will rather than God's will. Well, you may get away with it, so you think, for a while, but you won't in the long run. 
And um, so anyway, that's what that... So uh, this is uh, this concept that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have not sinned against God. That is out of keeping with the real scriptures, with the 66 books that make up the scriptures. So if... Uh, <laughs> If we include the prayer of Manasseh in the Holy Bible, then what can we say? We can say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. And now people's trust and confidence in the Bible will be shaken. And that is not a good thing. We don't ever want to foster unbelief in that which is true and faithful and, and authentic. So in closing, I want to say this. Though the apocryphal books are not part of the God-inspired scriptures. They are still interesting. The other day I read Bell and the Dragon. It was an interesting little story. It's very short. It's interesting and uh, in inspiring and uh, beneficial in many ways. These are writings from people. And so, um, so they're still interesting and they still have some value. There's no doubt there. There are a lot of books out there that we read that have a lot of value, but that doesn't mean they're they're the inspired scriptures. So these books support, these apocryphal books, that is, they, in some ways, and in actually in many, many ways, they support the truths of the Bible. But they don't support the truths of the Bible in every way. And I think that's just important to make that distinction. I want to thank you for listening. May God bless you. And uh, I want to leave you with this verse. Jesus said, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink.